Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. In other words, I think that what we often do in apologetics or in even evangelism, it's almost like we're trying to convince people of something on the criteria or on the value system of a worldview that we all share. And of course, I think what's actually happening in Christianity is more revolutionary than that. That the way that you're going to convince people of this thing is draw them into a conversion experience. And what I think the New Testament means by conversion, though we don't really use the word this way, is inclusive of worldview transformation. That is, that we're actually inducted into an alternative understanding. With that behind us, then we can begin to talk about apologetics and proofs and the being convinced on a different order that we often think of obedience or control or belief or love as if these are consequences. But I think the, the way that John is presenting these things, these are the themselves equivalent of proofs so that we are inducted into a world in which there is now a control, you know, a capacity for coordinating mind and body. That's called obedience, or that's called, you know, the the kind of the idea that things fall into place. Love is a holistic experience of the world. It's a view, it's a worldview in which the world comes alive to us. So yeah, we, we often think of conversion primarily in terms of moral oh, I've been bad and now I want to be good. First of all, I think we've got that wrong a little bit. You know, when Paul was converted, I don't think Paul had a guilty conscience at all as a, as a Pharisee. What Paul encounters on the road to Damascus is not the resolution to his guilty conscience, but the picture that, oh, my whole world is wrong. My whole value system is wrong. I think that the drama of Paul's conversion, you know, we often talk, well, not every conversion is that dramatic. What is usually or should be involved in conversion is this transformation of our understanding of the world, that there is a Christocentric understanding. So transformation of the mind is inclusive of a moral transformation But that moral transformation is just part of a larger piece in which our valuation system is changed up. The very way in which we imagine knowing functions is changed up. Jim, do you have the comment? Do you have the, do you have it there in front of you? A chat, Jesus trial is a challenge to the affirmation of the law and the reason of the city. A Christian defense would undo and reorder human thought and imagination. I think that that's a that's, that's a profound thought, right? Because uh, what Paul is describing there is that we kind of take for granted, I think, sometimes that we're all working from the same understanding of 
how things truly are. And, and for Paul, especially, he's saying that violence is a part of how we understand the world, right? And all of its different structures and functions. And but I think that what Paul is saying is that when it comes to apologetics, sometimes we talk to people as if we share the same, the same understanding of what reality even is. But Paul is saying that actually Christianity introduces a radically different uh, even epistemology, we we would imagine that we share the same mindset as as people who might not know Christ. You know, so in other words, like the way that St. Paul puts it is, is that we have the mind of Christ, whereas we may be talking with someone who who doesn't have the mind of Christ, right? They have a they have a mind that's been formed by something other than our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, and so for Paul, Axton, you know, that's a, that's a radically different sort of orientation to. Uh, reality you know so that we would say that christ is our our understanding of of what is truly real what is truly good and beautiful and it's a very particular understanding of christ as a non-violent you know the good as such the one who has given us the way that we should live and stuff like that so when we're talking to someone who doesn't know christ and doesn't know these these things that they have a they have a very different way of of seeing the world and understanding uh, what truth is. I mean, for them, maybe there is no such thing as truth. They don't share that that faith because I do think that it is a faith that actually there is truth, uh, and that that truth is our Lord Jesus. Whereas they may say, "Well, no, you know, truth is relative. It depends on, you know, actually there are no facts. There are no things that we can truly say that are that are actually you know real and true." So I think that that's what Paul was saying is that that what Christianity gives us is a radically new way to understand and imagine the world, you know, and, and so we shouldn't go into those conversations thinking that we're, we're kind of maybe we're even sharing a, a, a different sort of language, you know, that's very foreign to someone. The concepts that we think are basic, like, you know, truth, goodness, someone that we may be talking to, they may not have that sort of Christian grammar. You know, I think that that's what you're saying, Paul. The, the claim that I would make is that there is a unified order outside of Christ. Now, that may not sound right. The, the things that are shared, a violent epistemology and the necessity of violence, and that may express itself in any number of ways, but a kind of originary violence, identity through difference, just the dialectic that we encounter in Hegel. That, you know, you can describe that in idolatrous terms, you can describe it in capitalistic terms. As we look at the world and we see, we imagine a kind of plurality, I think there is a kind of unified order. And in this order, then, there is uh, what Taylor calls an eminent frame or what David Bentley Hart refers to as a totality. That is that we would order our world from the inside out, and that gives us a kind of death-dealing, agonistic, originary violence. When we're just talking about a new world order, a new worldview, we, we are doing away with this kind of originary violence. The, the source of it, the beginning of it, is different, a peaceable kingdom kind of resource. And so I think that's, that's key. I've been hearing this, and you've got it on, I don't know, page. A theology founded on this betrayer would say, Christ dies so I don't have to. 
that's holding hands with Judas. <laughs> am I? Yeah. Am I in the? Am I in the same? Right. And that makes so much sense. Wow, I'm so lucky. What? What? Look what Christ did for me. I'm off the hook. Yeah. <laughs> My neurons are really wrapped tight. Who knows how many thousand times I've heard that reasoning. I hear what you're saying here, or at least my, my ears are hearing what you're saying. That There's two, two mindsets, I guess. One would be like logic and power. And I like later on what you talk about Nietzsche, who's that, the Superman? Yeah. He creates, the Superman creates a world that, you know, has power over everything. Yesterday, I went to the bank. My mom needs new checks, and I had a printout of her last checking bank statement and I had my driver's license. She said, okay, uh, do you happen to have your phone with you? I said, no. She said, well, since you don't have your phone, we can't complete this order because we can't confirm that it's you. <laughs> yeah. So it's perfectly logical. feel like you don't exist. Right. Your personhood doesn't matter at all. All that matters is that the numbers line up. The system. I just said, thank you. Bert. Thank you so much for all your help. <laughs> Just I remember my father, when he, he got a little old and crotchety, he went in to cash a check, and the, the bank teller said, uh, well, do you have your ID? He said, yeah, but I'm not going to show you. He said, I've been doing business in this bank for 50 years. If you don't know me by now, <laughs> they called the manager. I get the feeling that, that you as a person don't matter. Yeah that you're counted out of the system. And that's exactly right. That in a, a, a kind of the eternal truths of reason, what gets counted out are people. And propositions then take the place of people. It is a kind of depersonalized, disincarnate notion of truth that prevails. Logic and you know a kind of mathematical order or scientific order, it lacks one thing. And that is humanity. And unfortunately, that's the way we've done Christianity, is that we imagine we can get the books aligned, but it has very little to do with human, the lived human reality. Christianity, right, rightly read, and that's kind of what we're doing. You know, I think that's the, the, what Matt would call a spiritual approach, what I've been calling a theological approach. The thing that incorporates is us. It actually addresses the human predicament, the human situation. And if we don't get that, I don't think we're reading it right. We're, we're doing something wrong. And so it pertains to hum, the human psyche. It pertains to human emotions. It pertains to our ethical system and addresses us at a deep grammatical, you know, grammatical meaning the, the idea of the way that, our, our, that we're structured. And it undoes, in, in a sense, it gives us an alternative deep grammar, an, a, a restructuring. That if we think about originary violence as attached to giving language or uh, first order reality, which I think that's what we've described again and again, that in one way or another, that's what we do. That our systems, our cities, our orders of logic, our propositional structuring of things that is us and that's the world and that's what that matrix is what we're checking out of that is we're undoing we're deconstructing the matrix i think that's there in 
the New Testament. And interestingly, it may be only in a postmodern frame that we can return to that. Unfortunately, in a modernist frame, that we uh, made the New Testament, we made the Bible cohere with this notion of propositional understanding and logic and a, actually a kind of closed cosmos. And so that's what we are. I think that Christianity is all about deconstruction in order to arrive at a, as I de depicted it, you know, Jesus reconstitute reconstruction of the temple is actually cosmic reconstruction. Can you follow up on what are some doorways, openings, uh, portals, if people are on a path or people are at some sort of interface with, I guess, just being open to searching for a different way to see their, see reality or put their life in a different perspective other than, they, than they're able to, you know, for the moment. Let's just say there's Christian A, non-Christian B, and there's all this possibility of interactions between them. Just what are some thoughts you might have that possible connections? Yeah, yeah, I like the I like the question. You know, I think that's partly what's happening in the different characters that show up in, for example, in the Gospel of John. Yeah. What's the doorway to talking to Nicodemus? With Nicodemus, he references a Old Testament concept of being born again. And of course, he, he should have gotten that. You know, whether it was too far for him or not, we don't know. But that was kind of the way I was reading it, is there's a lot of ambiguity. With the woman at the well, I think that that conversation began with really graphic, erotic, you know, she, ha she has desires. And Jesus doesn't condemn those desires. He just takes her pursuit of desire and links it to God. So in a strange way, the man Nicodemus, who has a, a perfectly, well, not perfectly, obviously, because he's coming to Jesus, but he has a kind of world that makes sense. He's kind of, It's a, a world that's centered on Judaism. In a way, it's harder for Nicodemus to break out of that world than it is for the woman at the well to recognize the incompleteness of her world. And I think you can just go right on through that, you know, what does Peter, what's his problem? Well, he's got a lot of zeal. He's got a lot of belief. Uh, but of course, he pictures it again in terms of his capacity to violently establish and protect and order that world those various personalities and various characters line up for us as a kind of answer to your question that there are an infinite number of doorways into this. First of all, at seeing the captivity that we're all subject to. Maybe it's capitalism. You know, I guess in this culture, most people are caught up in the valuation of money. And Marx is you know, that's his point, is that this just saturates everything. Well, I think he's, he's right that for most people, money is their life. You know, that's, the, that's their value system. And that is empty. Sex may be another, you know, fear, fear of death. I think they all devolve down to that, in a sense, that what we're all doing is establishing ourselves over and against being undone. 
maybe we don't articulate it. Oh, I'm afraid to die. But uh, what we have is an experiential shame that we would resist. In other words, that's my understanding is that there is just this gut experience. You really just cannot afford to be put to shame. And so we invest ourselves in creating a, a system that is not subject to shame. But of course, the, that all of these systems prove to be fragile. The pride, I think, is just descriptive of human valuation systems. So I like yeah. your question, but I think it's, it is an individual question almost. Which reminds me of a statement you made a couple of weeks ago about reading theology in the day-to-day, day-to-day living, connect things to a, large, a larger picture. I always like the, did you, did you see the movie, The Matrix? I've heard of it, but I haven't seen it yet. It is a kind of neat illustration. And that is that, you know, The Matrix is actually a computer program that they're all part of. And when, mm-hmm. once you discover the program, you can enter into it and he can jump over, you know, he defies the laws of gravity. I don't think the Christian life is quite, you know, it doesn't quite operate in that magical sort of way. But I think there is the sense that once you can deconstruct the matrix, there is a capacity to put your finger upon the driving force and resist it. That is that there is an entry into this cosmic order that we've constructed for ourselves, that as Christians, we don't have to play that game. Now, it's very difficult sometimes not to. I think we all get swept up in it. But I think that is the power of the, you know, that's what is demonstrated in Jesus' miracles, the healing ministry. And then, in, you know, in the resurrection, he's able to just enter and walk through doors that other people can't walk through. Well, I think that's, in a sense, the tra- uh, metaphorically a depiction of what happens that suddenly doors that we didn't realize were there can be opened to us. That is alternative readings of situations, uh, alternative modes of action, the the necessities that prevail upon us prior, you know, I just say, I think that's the law, no longer prevails. It's, it is suspended. And so there, that's the peace, I think, of the Christian life, that that we can have great peace in the midst of the turmoil that this world puts upon us. Yeah. Not so much a question, but further along in this article, you talk about the gaps in language. It always refers to something else. There's a gap between language always refers to something outside itself. Yeah, the the sign and the, the thing it signifies. The truth equated with life in Christ is precisely aimed at closing the gap between truth and life, in which deception enters in. Yeah, I hope I haven't overstated that, that language is just a kind of chain. You know, you're, we're continually, it's a, we link ourselves to the chain. It's just, we're continually uh, running down that thing and always missing what the chain is signifying, the signified, you know, we're just caught up in the signifiers, that it's a world of symbols and signs and the letter of the law. It's just one letter after another. And so we never get to the thing itself. You know, that's literally the philosophy of Kant, which I think is just a description of the way that human desire functions. We always live 
in frustration. You know, that's the picture, I think, of the ego, that the ego is frustration in its essence, because it's built upon this this kind of linguistic gap. I don't mean to load all the problem on the language, but it's just that our orientation to it, as if it is an absolute in and of itself, creates this kind of impossibility that we would make something, you know, like language an absolute. And in and of itself, it is always referring outside of itself. It's not there's nothing, there's nothing inherently redemptive or true or in language per se. Something, it's the greatest witticism of all, of all time. Oh, 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 yeah. Isn't that Nietzsche's reading of uh, Pilate's yeah. uh, What is Truth? Yeah. Yeah. You kind of boiled that down to logic and power versus a person, you know, as a source of truth. Yeah, which is, uh, I mean, that's the, the basic Christian worldview, is that truth is personal. It's a person. Uh, uh, it, uh, even the word it's is wrong. Mm-hmm. He is a person, which is a reference to everything. The, the world is personal. Truth is personal. And what we've done is depersonalize it. We've made it mathematical, propositional, disincarnate. We've depersonalized it. Well, that ain't true. <laughs> you know, we're uh, our very notion of the truth is a lie. How do you get from the lie to the truth? <laughs> I include myself in this story. Took a couple books and just reading at a table, looking over the lake. And a couple tables down, there's this. I pictured him being Amish or Mennonite. He he didn't have a mustache, but he had a beard. He had his Bible. I was one of these readings. He walked by. He says, "Are you doing your homework?" And I said, "Yeah." I said, "I'm." taking a class on the book of book of John and it's pretty interesting and within moments he was asking me what version of the Bible do I use do I use King James uh. what started out as I thought we had some common ground sort of decomposed into a you know <laughs> what what version of the Bible do you yeah and yeah. I felt kind of awkward I said well I'm glad you enjoy your version. I have more than one at home, but uh, I'm glad you enjoy your version. The conversation went sideways into a legal. Right. Legal- it's the letter. It's the letter again. It literally, quite literally, he he really didn't want to talk about the substance. He wanted to talk about the letter. Was he a King Jameser? Was that? Yeah. Yeah. This is a personal statement. I just feel untethered from a group, from a source of community. As far as my Christian walk goes in the moment sort of in between something but i don't know what i guess i'm imagining being part of like a just a group that just sits around and talks about this stuff like we do online you know that's that's why i yeah i count that my main my main fellowship we you know we all have to find fellowship where we can and and that is our church we may not it may not be a formal thing yeah. So, yeah, I, I understand the sense of kind of being untethered. I never know what to tell people because I think we're all in unique situations and we kind of just kind of have to figure our way where we're at and, and find fellowship where we can. We're living in dark times. 
We, yeah, indeed, indeed. John asked me this morning if there was a future for, you know, there's all this stuff going on with the Russian Orthodox Church. And he asked me if I thought that there was a future for Orthodoxy in the United States. And I said, well, I'm not sure if there's a future for Christianity in the United States. <laughs> yeah. and, I, and I mean that. Yeah. At least not the type of Christianity that we're, um, that we discuss. And that's not to be like an elitist or, you know, an exclusionist or something like that. But just to say that, yeah, oh, yeah, there's plenty of quote unquote Christianities around here, but uh, they're not something that we're very interested in. And it's because they're not, in some way, I think that they fall short of what we understand to be, you know, the form of Christianity that we want to be a part of. God puts people in our lives. And we just kind of have to appreciate them for who they are. But everybody uh, is made in the image of God and, and we can develop an appreciation for them, which is not, that's a vague. <laughs> I know yeah, that's, that's not. Why, that, is, that is vague. Um, I mean, Sorry. for me personally, that's, that's the reason why I like, you know, the, this is, I have a lot of community here in this group. I do. And I appreciate the conversations. Um, but I also like, you know, going to like the divine liturgy where it's just worship and it's, it's not less talking and more sort of science, you know, more kind of like listening and going through the, uh, you know, you go through the prayers and stuff like that. And, um, it's a wonderful, uh, alternative, you know, to, to talking, uh, we talk, I mean, we say we pray and I think that, I think that we should, we should try to have both if we can, you know, we should, we should try to be a part of a group where we have nourishment from our friends and, um, we should also try to find somewhere where we can go and find the best place for us to worship God in a way that nourishes our soul in that way too, you know? And, and for me, that means, you know, the, the sacraments, you know, or the mysteries we call them, you know, and, and just the divine liturgy itself, which is to me, the best thing that happens on earth. I mean, I, I just, I always think in the, in the, during the divine liturgy that this is the best thing that's happening in the moment. Both are important. You know, but even if you don't have that many friends or whatever at the church that you're going to, you're sort of able to worship God there and um, and hopefully receive, you know, the, the mysteries and, and then have friends like we have with this. That's about all you can do. And we covered it. I know where to look for that, the sheep and the goat thing. Yeah, the uh, I did a blog last week on uh, John the Baptist statement. Here is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Yeah. I am taking a tack there, Jim. I'm not sure who all agrees with me on this. I'm presuming that we can identify Jesus completely. In other words, the work of Christ completely with the Yahweh goat. But I'm presuming that we cannot identify the work of Christ with the Azazel goat. Oh. In other words, I'm presuming that the Yahweh goat work or the work of Christ in the in you know the Passover, certainly in the way that it's portrayed in John, takes away the sin of the world. You don't have to negotiate it. You don't have to pay a, a penalty. You don't have to pay a ransom price. In other words, there's nothing to be done once Christ takes away the sin. So we're no longer negotiating with sin. Could it be that in the two natures of Christ, that Christ is both the Yahweh goat and the Azazel goat, the Azazel goat, however you say it, because he does both. Well, that would be a common way of reading. That, that would be the ordinary way of reading it. And I'm, I'm still thinking about it. I mean, I'm not, 
I'm not dogmatic on this. I'm still, I, I need to work on it some more. That yet, you, uh, Rene Girard's theory, I think, not all of it because Rene Girard's more positive, but you could almost fit his whole theory. And I'm agreeing with his theory. I'm not disagreeing with it. But in other words, his whole thing is, well, we the the function of the scapegoat is exposed. The scapegoating mechanism no longer works. I think that's right. But what we need to go on and say is, yeah, but there's a whole other side to this of the reality of what Christ is doing beyond the exposure of the lie of you know this death-dealing orientation or the scapegoating mechanism. And so, you know, part of the what happens to Christ is he is treated like a scapegoat. They literally, you know, they would use, they would spit on the scapegoat, they spit on Christ, they mock him. It is a scapegoating. But what is that? You know, what what is taking place there? I don't think that the sinners and their sin bears any weight in the economy of God. In other words, the person of Christ is not negotiating death. He's not, you know, that is, that punishing aspect of sin that Christ does indeed take upon himself is simply taken away because of who he is. Is it necessary that Jesus suffer due to who he is, or is the suffering a byproduct of simply human sinfulness. I think it's the latter. Yes, Jesus suffers like a scapegoat, but he saves us not because of that scapegoating. He saves us because he defeats it. He overcomes it. He defeats death. He establishes an alternative kingdom. I need to hear that again. And this idea of, uh, well, the whole thing, but this idea of the blood cleansing life, cleansing the temple and bringing life as something I need to like work through. And so Milgram and Barry, what they're doing, they're kind of, you know, I think we've got the wrong view of the Old Testament temple, but we can certainly correct that in light of who Christ is. When they tore the roof off that house and lowered that. The paralyzed man. Jesus said, your sins are forgiven. Jewish rulers, I guess, fall into the trap he sets up. And he said, which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or stand up and walk? So, And then on the cross, when Jesus said, I, I tell you, this day you'll be, in, you know, you'll be in paradise. So he was able to forgive all over the place. Yeah. What you just said a minute or so ago about you don't see how sin has any weight in the suffering has or something doesn't have any weight in the economy of sin. That kind of lit up a little light bulb for me that I need to think about more if, if I can. Or just We have a real habit of talking about forgiveness in a legal sort of fiduciary sense, you know, whereas that is the perfect story, the, the paralytic, where forgiveness is connected directly with the healing of the man. It's not that Jesus needs to do something or that God needs to have something in order to forgive. He can just, like you said, forgive whenever he wants and however he wants. But it, it's also related to the healing all throughout the synoptics and in John, you know, that the, 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 the forgiveness of sins and the healing of our nature is connected. 
And so, Paul, one of my favorite things about Origin of Alexandria is that he's very careful to compare, let's say, whenever, you know, the donkey, you know, Balaam's donkey. Well, he says that everything in scripture, every word, every uh, example, every animal, every single thing is divinely inspired. And so we might want to go ahead and look then at the donkey that Jesus rides in on and compare the two, for instance. And I'm thinking about the goats, you know, that, of course, in the famous Matthew discourse, where Jesus separates the sheep from the goats. And I'm wondering how, you know, it, it's almost like because the, the goats are lawless, in other words, they haven't been healed. They haven't been, they're still in their sins, right? I mean, that's, that's the thing about the, the sheep have followed Jesus. They've been, you know, they've been in his fold. That is that they have been healed to one degree or another. They've actually become his. Whereas the goats are, maybe they're outside of the camp and they, they're still, um, have their sins upon them, possibly like, you know, the Azazel goat. And so we may want to say, you know, look at what Jesus says about goats or uh, the rest of the scripture says about goats, you know. The origin's basic hermeneutical principle is to interpret every word and passage of scripture by every other word and passage of scripture, which seems maybe ridiculous. But origin's point is, is yeah, but you understand that the scriptures are just one word. Uh, it is the word of God. It is our Lord Jesus Christ incarnate in, in the scriptures. So he's, you know, I think that he would tell us, well, we should probably look at all the different uses of goats and what they do and how they're figured and what their types are and see what they do. And uh, because I'm just wondering if we can, I do think it's important to describe in Christ, you know, well, how is Jesus not the Azazel goat or the Azazel goat, you know, and, and to make that distinction and to talk about that and to say, okay, well then, what is it? And how, and how does it apply to Christ? And how, or, or maybe it, does it apply to the people who are not, you know, in some way associated with the Yahweh goat, which of course is Jesus, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just, it's an interesting use of types and figures, which is something I've been really interested in, you know? So it's kind of a cool way to think of it. It's like, well, then what is the Azazel goat? And how does it relate to, to Jesus and to, or, to, or to the sinners who find themselves outside, you know, that have not been healed? Right. I think that that was part of that ceremony, right? Was that there was a, you know, they, they were being uh, not just like forgiven. Other, again, we have like this habit of thinking about forgiveness in terms of a law court, uh, using that as the controlling metaphor. But I think that God has always been in the business of healing his people, first and foremost, changing their hearts and calling them to a circumcision, not of the flesh, but of the heart. Part of this is in the details of the ceremony. And that is that the first thing that happens in Leviticus 16, it revolves around the Yahweh goat. And the Yahweh goat is, of course, the goat that's sacrificed, whose blood is taken into the Holy of Holies. And the idea is that this life that God is providing cleanses the temple. And then the offscourings of the temple, the death and the sin, are placed upon the other goat. In other words, the detergent of the blood has done its work, and the second goat is not really doing anything other than symbolically removing these things to the pit, to the abyss, to the Azazel wilderness. That was actually the name. 
that's kind of scary in light of what I was just describing with the separation of the sheep and goats, but go ahead. Yeah, but the end of the story, of course, I, this was the significance I was attaching to John's depiction, the Lamb of God. The Lamb of God, like the Yahweh goat, does all of the work. You can identify Jesus as the Lamb of God. You can identify Jesus with the Yahweh goat. While you cannot identify Jesus with the Azazel goat, you can identify the work of Christ as accomplishing what the Azazel goat does. It's already accomplished. Here is the Lamb of God that sacrificed and just takes away the sin of the world. We don't have to run it down where he took that sin. You know, they literally, I think the Jews had a kind of uh, image of sin that it was this thing you had to carry out. You know, it was this filth or this dirt that you had to dump. But in Christ, we understand, well, no, it's actually not, not anything. It's nothing, ultimately. The Ark of the Covenant is in the Holy of Holies between the two cherubim, and there is the presence of God. The tomb is like the Ark in that the two angels appear, and there's all sorts of similarities then struck between the Ark That's and good. the tomb. That's good. So that Christ occupies the place that was the place of the dead, Hades, Sheol, that that place is, in fact, in a sense, it's not a place anymore. That is a category that is undone, that what has become so far removed from God is now the holy of holies. What does that mean, a category? That seems like an abstraction. It is an abstraction. I think Sheol, the place of the dead, or just the graveyard. You know, what is that thing? Uh, well, uh, it ain't nothing. <laughs> There's no souls hanging out there. The category that the Jews had, I think that we all have, a kind of intermediate state that we imagine is a real thing. We kind of create this abstraction of an in intermediate state is filled in by Christ. I don't think there is actually Hades or Sheol, because the Ark of the Covenant that is the tomb, that is the cross, in other words, that's what's been obliterated, is this abstraction that has is a controlling abstraction. It is a kind of unreality that served as an ultimate reality. Nothing. Nothing. Oh, that's good. That's brilliant. You know, you're just doing what origin does. That right there is exactly what that is a spirit as a mystical reading, you know, what you just described with the Holy of Holies and the cherubim and all that. And I love that, you know, you compared it with the two angels. That's all that to me, man, that's the bread and butter. That's the good stuff. That's the that, to me, I think that's where the truth ultimately resides is in the mystical, the mystery that you're bringing together with these different things. I think it's just such a fun. And that's what I'm saying. That's why I was saying a while back. It's like Origins are not playing a game. You're not. You're not playing around with this. You're. You're. You're coming to. You're. You're reading these things in a profoundly uh, mystical way. But I think that we've had a bad habit of saying, "Oh, mystical," just me. You know, in a modern sense, it's like, well, there's no way to conflate mystic, the mystical and the true, or something like that. 
but that's just not the way that the, that's not the way that the fathers thought about it. You know, the mystery, that's why we call the sacraments, the mysteries. I don't know exactly what's happening with the body and blood of, you know, the bread and wine being, uh, you know, consecrated and, and uh, changed into the, the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a mystery, but I know it's happening or I believe, you know, that it's happening and that it's everything that it's a, uh, I feel like we've been afraid to do it when it comes to biblical interpretation. And I think that what you're doing there is exciting. It's exciting. It's an alternative reading that is actually getting us somewhere. I think it is. Yeah, I think it is. And, you know, you you think about the Ark of the Covenant. What marked the seat of the mercy seat was the cherubim. If we are right in seeing the tomb as the Ark, the mercy seat, is that place where Jesus' body, you know, was laid. Actually, the same language is there. They put it there. That's what they did with the ark. But now the place of resurrection, you know, the mercy seat was the place in which Moses received his revelations. God's presence was there. God spoke. Well, the mercy seat in the, in the tomb is the place of death. But now God's presence is in the midst of death. He speaks from the grave, quite literally. That's where we encounter God. Not that the grave is anything, but that he's spoken and undone that category. And he says something quite significant three times to the apostles. He says, peace be unto you. I don't think he just means chill out, you know, and and have a sense of tranquility. This is the peace of, this is a peace that goes beyond. It is that like you described earlier in the talk, that there is a there is a peace in the midst of all this madness. But there's also the peace that you were just describing that, man, that's a pretty bad situation to have to go into the tomb, you know, between the two angels, I apparently of judgment or whatever, you know, and to go into death and to not have any hope and to be, the, you know, you're at the judgment seat and the, you know, I guess you hope that it's the mercy seat, you know, but Christ fulfills that and makes it the mercy seat, you know, and speaks from it and speaks what is good. And then he sends the Holy Spirit to continue to speak through his apostles, uh, you know, through through what we now call the New Testament, through, uh, you know, what we would say is the Holy Fathers, maybe through this conversation that the play, that in other words, we ourselves have come from the death. Paul says you were dead in your trespasses and sins, but you were raised with Christ. And so uh, this goes back to what we were saying earlier. We have the mind of Christ. It's like, man, that's a, that's a pretty tall order, you know? But I think that we're developing, like in the Greek word, we call it the phronima. It's like the mindset. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a way of seeing reality, you know, with the mind of Christ. Man, wouldn't it have made more sense? I mean, this, obviously this can't be right. But why didn't John the Baptist say, behold, the Yahweh go of God? There is the theology of John is contained in that statement. You know, first of all, the, the, what has happened that we immediately cannot do, we blend the Yahweh goat and the Azazel goat. That's what Calvin does. And that through church history, you're going to see people doing that. But you can't blend the Passover lamb with the Azazel goat. Those are two very separate things. And that's my understanding of the theology of John, that it's a positive theology. John is not depicting Christ having to do what he does because of sin, but in order to give life. 
getting rid of sin as a consequence of the love and life of Christ. The primary thing is not about sin-bearing. The primary thing is about giving life and love, and that takes away the sin of the world. That's excellent. That's that's excellent. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. That's the theology of John. How is that different from the Yahweh God? The same, yeah, you're right. It is the same thing as the Yahweh goat, but by linking it to the Passover lamb, that is a, a singular thing. The Passover lamb was had yeah, I mean, nothing. The, the, the two, the, I mean, very, very well. I mean, obviously, the two must be related at least in some way, right? The Yahweh goat, the pat, you know, the Passover lamb, which is typifying Christ. Obviously, those two are related intimately, you know, related and interconnected, and yeah, and that's what that's what I'm saying. The positive work of the Yahweh goat can be equated with the Passover lamb. There's the full work of Christ. You don't need to say anything else. But then you can describe a consequence of that, taking away the sin of the world. Which is beautiful, because what you're describing then, yeah, because we would, we would normally make sin the primary, you know, the, I think you're right about this. You know what, I, at least the, the way that I receive my my entry into theology is that really sin is the primary thing that is the you know it's the obstacle it's it's the reason for christ coming but that's why you've laid all the groundwork of saying you know in law the fathers teach this that christ would have become human regardless of if there was a fall or not because the whole plan from eternity was to join the human nature to the divine nature and of course sin is not a requirement for that that's you know sin doesn't have it doesn't have anything to do really with that mission of God. You know, it's, it's just a total uh, evil interruption. Origin says that the only reason why God allows evil to continue is so that we can, you know, he so that he can bring good out of it, you know, and so that we can actually conquer evil. So he says it actually really does now provide a real role, uh, you know, not real in, in quotes, but it, it provides a, a function. That is that, when we encounter evil uh, or the passions, you know, uh, that it, it's a re- it's an opportunity to become like Christ, to, to conquer it, to overcome it, to be united with God and to not allow, you know, our, our, our temple to be defiled by the very thing that the Azazel goat, you know, is meant to drive out from the people of Israel. It's just, a, I think it's a really profound thing, a point that you're making, if you, if you really think through it, that, that sin and death and evil really aren't the primary thing that Christian theology is talking about. The primary thing that Christian theology is talking about is our Lord Jesus Christ and his love and his goodness and his, his sovereign power over all of his creation. And I mean, sovereignty in the, in the, you know, in the best sense of, of, uh, willing the good for all of his creation, like a good sovereign, you know, that the evil and sin and death are almost like a, well, like you said, at the end of the day, it's nothing that we've made everything. And we've even done it in theology. Yeah, We've made it the chief, we've made it the primary task that Christ came, you know, and, and of course that's a, it's a, like you said earlier, I think you said, it's a, it's a byproduct of the life of Christ and the victory of Christ that sin and death and evil are abolished. But the positive part of that is that the human nature is joined to the divine nature and that Christ had a body and a soul and a spirit. He was fully human, 
so that we could become fully God. That is the positive thing of what I think John's, that's why I said the other day in class, well, what's the soteriology of John? Well, it must be divinization. So in other words, it's not just Jesus came to die for your sins. Of course, that's true. I mean, you know, St. Paul says that that's the first importance is that Christ died for sins, right? But he then goes on to describe resurrection and the rest of that whole big section. So, you, you know, and so to me, uh, becoming gods, you know, little G gods, divinization, theoses, that is the positive theology of St. John, of which, uh, of course, from the beginning, even in the, even in the narrative, sin, disobedience, rebellion, shame, guilt, alienation, violence, all these things are just a product of us not being God, or maybe being sort of a counterfeit God, or believing a lie to become a God in a different way, which of course is to become a sort of Satan. Yeah, alienation. And so it is, it is simply a picture. We have life, and life displaces death. Christ has this ability to move in people's lives it takes meets them starts with where they are. That's good. Yeah. No matter where it is, and uh, moves them into a different kind of reality. He meets people where they're at. They know something, and he starts with what they know and unfolds it from there. Which, by the way, takes us back to the very beginning of the conversation about epistemology. And so, you know, that would be my only critique, or maybe it's not even a critique, but that is that. They really do know something that's, that's real, that's true. And so that, that all knowledge and, uh, you know, is already a participation in the life of God. That all, that the logo, that re what we're talking about is reason, logos, is already then a participation in the life of Christ. So we can't do an absolute, you know, sort of um, that there's one knowledge over here and then one knowledge over there because all, you know, all knowledge is a participation in the logos of Christ. And that's why God meets us where we are, whether we're Jews or Gentiles or whatever, or the gym can meet his students where they are. And then he can lift their truth higher. Yeah, I think, I think that's right. I agree with you. And what I'm about to say is not disagreement. And that is, and you've heard me say this before, that the truth, though, can cohere in a lie. That is, that we can take the truths that we have and make it part of the construct of a false understanding. So I think it is true that, you know, we all have access to the truth, but we would so misconstrue it and so misplace it that even those truths that we may have sometimes then are put it as part of a larger picture that is completely false. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't get my checks. The truth was, that's not how they do it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that, that the system in the end, in, in a real sense, just counted you out. They had their truth, but it, 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 it has nothing to do with reality. And that, that is you. You're real. <laughs> and I have the NIV, and I should have brought my King James. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the devil quotes the scripture to Christ, right? The devil quotes the word of God to the word of God. And he quotes the way, King James and, and, and in the, the King James. And he, 
That's right. He quotes the King James word and the word of God to the word of God. And he does it in order to deceive him, to try to deceive him. So he tries to use the truth of the word of God in order to deceive the word of God. Right, right. The truth coheres in a lie. Yeah. Good stuff. Okay. Good stuff. Jim, you inspired us. <laughs> Please. Please. You said it very well um, in this podcast, so you might want to rewind it and just listen to that one part. Yeah, I did. I actually said it. I wish I had uh, I, I had put it in the blog the way I said it uh, just now to you all because uh, it it uh, it brought it home in a way that I say it again before well, you get there. <laughs> oh no, if I can, that God oh. speaks to us from out of the the tomb in the place of the dead that had primary formerly been the abyss. It's precisely there, the place between the living angels of God, that the revelation of Christ appears, that the very category of uh, Hades and Sheol becomes the, the, the place of the Holy of Holies and the center of the world from which God speaks to us, so that Sheol is undone. And you understand that you're doing that you are directly engaging Jija there and the calm. You mean over and against them. Is that yeah, connected? You're directly you're answering they they, they they understand what it is that you're saying. Well, I don't know if they understand what you're saying, but they understand the problem that you're describing. And you are providing the only possible answer to the problem that they correctly identify and articulate. For Zizek, a word would have to come, you know, through the nothing. Yeah, that that nothing is displaced. Is they got the nothing, and the nothing is absolute. But in Christ, nothing is displaced. It's not only really displaced. It's you said that it's filled with Christ. Right, right. That God becomes all in all. Yeah, yeah. That the nothing, whatever nothing is, which obviously by definition is not something. It's nothing. It's either blotted out or abolished or filled with Christ, but there's no other third way. Is that connected right. with the uh, temple and the curtain being torn in two? In the, uh, the comparison I did this morning, there is the veil in the temple, and that is similar to the stone on the tomb. The stone is rolled away. The, temp the curtain is split. There is an opening up you know, of the Holy of Holies. And, of course, we often picture the Holy of Holies in the wrong way. It's not so much the priest going in and meeting God, but the priest goes in as God's representative and then emerges as God's representative. And so I think the stone being rolled away and the curtain being opened is God coming to his own and making himself fully accessible to the world. There is no splitting of the curtain in John, but there is a rolling away of the stone. With the tearing of the veil, you know, St. Paul's very uh, clear about this, that our understanding, our epistemology, our interpretation of the word of God is veiled uh, apart from Christ. So when the veil is ripped open from top to bottom, there is then an opening into, you know, what is the holy of holies? Well, it's Christ, right? I mean, it's the word of God and himself. 
And so that for origin, that what's get what we have access to, what was once blocked off, really is Christ in some That's way, good. right? And both, That's good. you know, and, and and so in the scriptures, you know, it's like we can't see him, you know, but now the veil has been lifted, it's been torn down, so that we can peer into the holy of holies, that we can look, we can do what Paul just did and do a mystical interpretation that's true so don't let's let's not separate the mystical from the truth uh or, or to imagine that some sort of secondary you know uh way to get it it's like no we believe in order to understand that is our epistemology and so we have a very distinct hermeneutic as christians and it's a christian hermeneutic where we peer we, we peer through the open curtain into the holy of holies and we can see Christ sitting in the mercy seat that was once a tomb. That's good. That's good. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I wish your I wish your sound were better because this oh, is such man. a wonderful conversation. I a better, if I had a better producer, he could uh, <laughs> he could take that audio and auto use auto tune and add yeah, bass. Yeah. <laughs> you could add some bass to my voice, and you could make me sound real tough. <laughs> Uh, hey, glad, glad we could do this. Glad thank you very much. All right. All right. Bye. See you. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.